In the contemporary Western evangelical church, the dominant way of exegeting the scriptures is the historical critical method. But what if we can look to the early church and allow them to speak to us about ways of reading the scriptures that can expand our methods and our openness to the Spirit as we communicate the truths of the Bible? That's the topic of the conversation I had recently with Dr. Jasper Knecht. Jasper teaches Christian doctrine at WTC. He completed his BA in Theology and Biblical Studies at the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Belgium, and he completed his Masters of Philosophy and PhD in Systematic and Historical Theology at the University of St Andrews. That's in Scotland, by the way. His interests include the history of doctrine, and particularly the development of Christological thought in the Patristic Era, Late Antiquity, and the Early Medieval Church. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and this episode of Theodisc is about reading the scriptures with the early church. Delighted to have Jasper Knecht with us today. Yes. Uh, we're actually recording here in person at the WTC Residential. So yes. It's good to be sitting across the table from someone. Quite often I do these online, so yeah. um, it's good to be here with you, Jasper. And we're going to have a little bit of a conversation today about um, how we um, exegete the scriptures and mm. maybe um, some ways that the early church mm. can help us um, understand some different ways that we might approach that. Mm. But before we get into that, you have to go through our the gauntlet of three questions mm-hmm. that every first-time guest um, has to go through. So this is just for us to get a sense of not just the things that maybe you're thinking through at the moment, but the things that are constants um, in your life, mm. um, the things that you return to. Mm. Um, so the three categories are um, a book, mm. a food or a meal, and a place. So the first one, what's a, a book that you return to? Yes, well, I had to think about this a little bit, but I think it is um, Tolkien's Silmarillion, weirdly enough. Um, but I suppose maybe as a historian or someone as a historian of the church, it makes some sense because it's a lot about dates and big stories. And I just really enjoy the, the, the narrative of the setting up of this kind of big world that Tolkien um, describes. Um, yeah, so that's the book I very frequently return to. It's it's not a theology book, but it is a book I really like. Or or is it? <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, <laughs> I've almost always thought that one is quite fragmented. Is that not true? Yeah, it is. It is true that it is. Um, uh, it has various different lines of the story, and it jumps hundreds of years and goes back. And so it's yeah. I I when I read it, I have a notepad next to me and a and a pencil. <laughs> That's some serious stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, what about a food or a meal that you Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm originally Dutch. And um, in the Netherlands, we, we have this food that we eat. Um, it's, uh, it's just raw herring. Um, and it is what I really enjoy and really like. Um, when we still lived in the UK, it was the thing I, I would get first thing when I get home is herring with raw onions and gherkins it sounds awful but it is absolutely delightful um so it's it's literally what i return to every weekend i'm assuming that's not a meal where you would take if you're dating someone you know, well yeah. fortunately my wife really enjoys it too so we both eat it and then it's fine yeah <laughs> don't have to worry about the bread no, after that no 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 and a place that you return to yes so i think it's the 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 coast uh, the a place uh, where I used to go um, 
um, it's called Katwijk in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful beach, um, and it has a little white church on the coast, and yeah, that's a place I really enjoy going to Bro. time and time again. Well, thank you, Jasper. Yeah. Gives a little bit insight into you. A little insight. You. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we move on to kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. And I guess you've been thinking a lot about how um, the early church can maybe provide a, a, a rich field of study for those mm-hmm. who are maybe in the charismatic evangelical mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. that maybe we don't always consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've been teaching with WTC for um, seven or eight years now. I've been always... Um, I've been doing various things, but one constant is teaching patristics and kind of early church history and early church theology. Um, And I have felt that when we begin diving into this topic, there's kind of um, one of two first kind of attitudes that I encounter. On the one hand, it's people who have done kind of some reading in theology and feel that somehow the kind of moving of Christianity from its original kind of first century Jewish context into a Greek context, which is governed by the Greek language and the Greek um, cultural concerns, but also the Greek philosophical undertones that you have in the Greek world has kind of distorted in a way um, the original kind of first century Jewish context um, Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is an undercurrent that I feel is around, that there is a sort a kind of hesitation towards the theology that is proposed in this time period because some think it is fundamentally at odds with the type of theology um, that you would have found in earlier kind of um, the first century um, Christian circles. Um, So I think that's one of the two um, kind of hesitations. The other is that some might think that our concerns have nothing to do with their concerns. They were concerned about completely different questions. It was all about natures and kind of, uh, kind of, yeah, the, 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 the philosophical outworkings of faith and less the types of concerns that we deal with today. So there's, yeah, I feel it's always a great joy to show people the beauty of the early church and the, the depth um, of the theology that I think um, we find with the church fathers yeah. and mothers. And certainly from my perspective as someone who's grown up in kind of that charismatic mm-hmm. evangelical environment, it does feel like there's kind of a reticence mm-hmm. um, to go back to the other church. It's almost as if we have arrived at a point of history mm-hmm. where we kind of, we have the spirit and we've, we've mm-hmm. kind of been through revival and renewal and mm-hmm. perhaps that is irrelevant yeah. to us now. Um, do you do you encounter that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do feel that it's seen um, as... Um, maybe I think there is a, a, a lacking awareness, perhaps, that this is our tradition, right? This is not another tradition that we go into as kind of foreigners and kind of kind of as an inter- interesting foray into a different world to see, oh, what did these people think? Now, if you think of the Christian kind of church as a big tree that grows and the top of of it is our time periods and you have all these branches that kind of reach out into the sky in which our tradition is you know one of these branches Mm -hmm. 
out of hundreds, if not thousands, they all go back to the same trunk. And the trunk is this early church. And we're drawing sap from that same trunk. And we're, we're, we're grounded, literally, if we use the image of the tree, in this kind of tradition. So I think it's important to kind of embrace it um, and, and not feel this reticence. Because I think, obviously, we need to make translation steps, etc., when we read them. Um, but yeah, I would really um, encourage people to to dive in because it's fascinating. Yeah, and we, we, we kind of have this sense of um, that we, especially in charismatic circles, that we're looking for the new mm-hmm. and the fresh. I like the analogy you just given there, the metaphor of the tree, mm-hmm. because anything that's new growth that we're experiencing now mm-hmm. actually comes from something mm-hmm. that's gone before us. It hasn't yes. just appeared no. you know, in a vacuum mm-hmm. in our time period now. Mm-hmm. I always think of the cartoon, I don't know if you've seen it, of the teacher standing in front of a, a, a group of Bible students, mm-hmm. and he's got a board, and there's this very complex a mapping out of church history that he has mm. on the board and it all kind of centers down to a single point. Yeah. And he says, and this is us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank goodness that we finally figured it all out. We are the, we're the right branch, the only correct one that comes out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is, um, it's true. I recognize this, this newness, this kind of wanting the fresh. Um, but I think if we realize that, you know, we're not, we're, we're getting to know our own tradition better. We're starting to understand where our own belief in the nature, who the spirit is, who Jesus is, who God is, is three in one. You know, all these things that are so unspokenly accepted in many of our traditions have their origin in this time period. And us trying to understand it better will give, I think, new depth and new understanding um, into the beauty of... Um, of our faith yeah. and um, the beauty of God um, himself. So do you think that the, our understanding of the Holy Spirit um, might actually be a place, a fruitful meeting ground with the early church, when we, especially when we start to think about how we understand the scriptures? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I cannot speak for the whole of the early church, right? I, I hear kind of my academic reticence comes out that I don't want to make overreaching statements. But the tradition I do know something about is the kind of Alexandrian Egyptian tradition, and I studied that in, in some depth. Um, and in that tradition, you find a very strong um, emphasis on the spirit as the unifying agent of kind of New Testament period fathers of the church and kind of in their time, their contemporary bishops, the, the people who lead the church in that time. It is you have to remember that in these early couple centuries, we don't have a formalized canon in the way, a New Testament canon in, in the way that we have that now, right? We can say, read um, these 27 books and this is what we believe about who Jesus is in, in a time period where you don't have that, where it's still being brought together in the history and through faithful listening to the words of these texts that they come together and they're placed together, what binds them what binds the church together, what binds their belief in their in their faith together is the idea that it is the spirit who unifies it all. It's the spirit of Christ, it's the spirit of the church, and it's the spirit that guides the church in deciding what dogma, doctrine, and texts can be trusted. And I think this centrality of the spirit in as the formative kind of um, unifying agent in in or the unifying 
power that brings these texts and holds the church together and the charismatic emphasis on the the power of the spirit um i think do find obviously they're different but they do find a an echo in one another yeah yeah brilliant well why don't we look into kind of Mm. a bit more in depth about how looking at the early church finding some common ground and understanding of the power of the Spirit might affect the way that we understand uh, the Scriptures and mm. read the Scriptures together. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we have a we have a method of reading the Scripture, a dominant method of reading the Scriptures mm-hmm. in our time, which has been tried and tested as kind of historical mm-hmm. exegesis of the Scriptures. Um, what would you say about that, mm-hmm. that method, and how does that differ maybe slightly from how the early church tended to read things? Yeah, it's a, it, that's a, it's a really good question. It's also a very big question because it draws in a lot of different historical concerns. And um, I think, first of all, the historical critical method, which is the name of it, um, finds its origin in, in kind of, it doesn't start in the form that we have now, um, immediately in the Reformation time, but it begins with, um, in the time of the Reformation, goes through hundreds of years of development, and then in the time of the development of kind of critical and historical awareness, where we start to realize that, you know, we can research the past, that we can read texts in a particular way and figure out if things really happened and how they happened. And um, this method of reading scripture, which is now our standard method of reading scripture, um, grew, and it is now kind of the golden standard of how we read the Bible. This is how we read our scripture in sermons, how we probably do it at home. If you go to a theology education, this is the standard way of doing exegesis. It's questions of of genre. It's of construction of a text. It's what do words mean? How does does it relate to the context? And, you know, it's all these kind of this big methodological system of this is how we read the text. I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong with system A or system B or system C, because I don't think that God's ability to speak through his word to his church, to you, to me, is dependent only on, you know, what method we use, whether we get to, you know, it's God, it's, it's scripture. We, we hear the voice of God through the words of scripture in whatever way God does that. Um, so I think that's just to say that that is the way in which our churches probably today generally read the Bible. In the early church, that was really quite different. That system didn't exist, um, at least not in that way. Um, and many other forms of exegesis, and exegesis is, you know, the explanation of Scripture. Um, many other forms of exegesis existed um, in um, one of them. The most famous is allegory. Um, and allegory is someone, something, is a way of reading the Bible that we would probably be a little uncomfortable with today if we would hear it. But a nice example of this um, is found in a theologian called Oregon in the third century who reads the story of the Good Samaritan and explains it and says, you know, Jesus is actually talking about salvation in this story and the Good Samaritan. And um, Jerusalem, where the person is leaving from, is paradise. Jericho, where he's heading, is the world. It's the external powers that are the robbers that attack him, and his wounds are his sins. When the Samaritan comes, who is Jesus, he puts the the, um, 
the, the person on his donkey, which is the humanity of Jesus, which carries the sins to the inn, which is the church. And there this person rests and, and waits for the return of the Good Samaritan, who, which points to the return of Jesus Christ. So this is an allegory of the Good Samaritan. It's taking aspects of a story and says they're actually pointing to something else. That was very normal for the first about 1,000 years of the church. That this was how men, how people read their Bibles, um, which is just fascinating to know that for so long. Um, and obviously, there were other forms. You know, there's um, I can talk about this for a longer time, which I don't want to. But the the, the four senses can be um, a literal reading. We can apply it to the future things to come. We can look, apply it to ethics and morality, and then analog. Um, uh, anal- uh, allegory, sorry, um, as the four themes in which we can read scripture, which are not the historical critical method, but are quite different indeed. Yeah, so why do you think that that would make us slightly uncomfortable reading it uh, in that way? Because, I mean, as you go through the allegorical um, Mm. reading of of that parable, Mm. um, you can see that it works, Mm -hmm. but we might think, hmm, that's you're kind of reading more into the text there mm-hmm. that rather than taking something that's already inherently in, in the text, if that makes sense. Yes. <clears throat> I think it might make us uncomfortable because out of the Reformation comes, and the sola scriptura, you know, only scripture, mm-hmm. um, comes a certain concern um, that the ultimate authority in theology should be the Bible, should be scripture, which I think is right. If uh, the difficulty about um, figurative exegesis, like allegory or tropological or um, anagogical readings, which are difficult words for non-literal exegesis, non-historical critical exegesis, um, is that they are freer. They are less kind of regimented in this is how we get to the meaning of this text and then um, we can use it as a measurement for you know what is God saying to his people what you know that kind of there is a trustworthiness and a kind of stability in in the historical critical method which gives hands and feet to wanting scripture to be the ultimate authority if if you let go of that a little bit and you say, okay, well, maybe there are other ways in which we can read this, in, we can read the word of God that would not necessarily be bound by those historical critical boundaries of how we read the text. It becomes a bit more difficult. It becomes less straightforward to say that's a wrong reading and that's a right reading. That's a good understanding of this text and that's not a good understanding of this text because it becomes a spiritual matter. Mm. It becomes a matter that is dependent on, you know, do we trust that this is a spirit kind of led interpretation of this text or not? And yes, that happens within the broader context of, and this is, I think, where we also get uncomfortable, tradition. There is like a broader sense of this is what the church has always taught. This is what we believe. And that becomes your framework to say, this is a text that a reading that falls within the boundaries of that, and this might be a reading that doesn't. I think Oregon's would perfectly well fit within it because it's not teaching anything that we would not otherwise already believe. Right. But you need to trust that it is 
within the context of the church who checks what types of readings we have, believing that the Spirit is guiding us, and guided by this broader kind of, um, yeah, historical, traditional awareness of what we think Christian faith looks like. So would it be fair to say then that maybe leading, leaning into this kind of reading might require a little more dependence on listening to the voice of the Spirit mm-hmm. um, through the text? Yeah, I think it's it's at least, uh, you know, the debate of is this good exegesis or bad exegesis, even in, in when you use allegory, that's as old as the, as the method itself, right? In um, uh, people in the fourth century, very much, or some of them did not like Oregon for some of these allegorical things because it's too speculative. It just goes in all kinds of directions and it's very difficult to know, you know, how do we put a boundary to this and how do we um, kind of test it? Um, But it is, you're right, in a context where um, we possibly might allow this more, uh, dependence on the spirit, believing that it is the spirit who guides our exegesis, who guides our understanding, and the fact that, you know, ultimately it's about God speaking through this text to us, through his spirit, in whatever way God decides to do that. Um, yeah, I don't think there is an inherent problem with that, but you do have to have some kind of reactions to that and saying, well, we might have to do a bit more with tradition or we might have to do, you know, you have to compensate somewhere to say, if it doesn't become the stability in the historical critical method, then there needs to be something else that we can use to, yeah, evaluate. And I think it's interesting that we often would, we would often take that approach in a personal sense. Hmm. So we might say, I was reading the scriptures today and the Lord really spoke this yes. to me through this. Mm-hmm. And that might not be <laughs> anywhere near what we might expect somebody mm-hmm. to preach on a mm-hmm. sermon. Yes. But there, we, there's, so there's maybe a little more openness there in a personal yes. reading. Yeah. You know. And maybe we have to get used to, um, you know, I think it's good that we keep maybe a distinction between the things that God speaks to us through a text and what we think God speaks to his church when we're preparing a sermon. You know, I think there, there might be a difference there. Yep. Um, but that doesn't t- take away from the fact that, you know, maybe <laughs> there is some space for more figurative readings, for more readings that see the text as alive and maybe coming out of left field or ref- right field in, in what it's trying to say and, and drawing from images or parts of the gospel um, that we might not expect to come out of a particular text. So returning to this idea of um, of the spirit as being kind of a, a common ground, mm-hmm. um, how, can, how can our contemporary charismatic evangelical church embrace some of the the ways that the early church read the scriptures and make them a part of our our life together now. Well, I think first of all, it might be interesting just to start engaging with them. You know, to read texts to get used to the to the fact that you know these are our brothers and sisters who were reading the scriptures like you, like me, in a very different world, but we're trying to figure out the same types of questions that we are, you know, who are wanting to understand who Jesus is, who God is, who the Spirit is, and how that all fits together in, in, our, in our lives. Um, the, the second is, I think, to realize that our concern 
or our emphasis on the work in the person of the Spirit is not something that's completely new, right? There is, There are people in the history of the church who already had these moments of greater emphasis on the work in the person of the Spirit. You see this at the end of the fourth century, I think, particularly where after kind of defending the divinity of Jesus, um, there is a push to defend the, the, the divinity and the personhood of the Spirit, which just as much tried to say, you know, the Spirit is an important part of the being of God, but also in our life as a church. Um, so I think it's in those kind of those first things of engagement and understanding that the, the emphasis on the work of the Spirit um, is something that finds its echoes in the history of the church. Um, that will be a good beginning, I think. Yeah. And then how, how do we then um, perhaps broaden our reading of Scripture? Mm-hmm. In a way that, because um, obviously we've talked already about that there may be this sense of risk of mm-hmm. stepping out into different ways of understanding things, but how can we maybe pull from their way of reading allegorically or mm-hmm. some of these other ways that you've talked about mm-hmm. um, and bring that into not just our sermons, mm-hmm. but maybe in the ways that we share scriptures with one another mm-hmm. how, how would you recommend that we you know, yeah I, I think if i now think about it i think it would be at least for me and this is a gut feeling this is not a reasoned opinion or but i i would find it difficult to listen to a sermon where they would allegorize you know I, that's an honest answer like i think i think it would be good if we would start practicing maybe this more this art of allegory um Maybe we can start in our own kind of private times. I think Lectio Divina might be a way in getting into this. You know, it's this kind of quietness around the text and saying, what, God, how does this relate to your wider story of salvation? You know, what we see happen with Abraham. Do we see something mirrored in the work of Jesus? You know, I think Genesis 22, the sacrifice, I think there is a very natural kind of prefiguring of the work of Jesus. You know, these are beginnings of saying, how can we, are there, do we hear echoes? Do we see mirroring going on in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Or um, do we see the spirit already kind of preparing your mind for things that are going to be happening later on? Is it actually pointing you forward to these types of things? Um, And I think to start trying this and practicing this, um, and yes, I think the question of risk and, you know, how, how do we engage with this well as a church um, feels a, a bit to me that it goes beyond my pay grade. You know, I feel we might as a, this is not something that you have to figure out as a singular person, but I think it's the church that needs to say, if there is value in this and we are able to, to still hold true to this belief that scripture is the ultimate authority, but there is in a way we find a mode in which we can engage other forms of exegesis in sermons in devotions that draw from different styles of exegesis helpfully i think that might be a way to begin and see how we how we go really this may be a larger question for the time that we have left yeah, but yeah. i'm just going to pose go. it anyway i i think sometimes there's a sense of that we're trying to get to the one definitive reading of a text mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's a bit more of a, a, a position of humility to mm-hmm. say to maybe present something as this is one way mm-hmm. that we might read this mm-hmm. um, or that the spirit is at least speaking in different ways through the same text mm-hmm. of that yeah I think you know if 
I think we all know these experiences that we read a text and we've read it over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, something jumps out. You're like, oh, I'd never thought of that. I've never noticed that. Or this emphasis on, on this particular thing is just completely new to me. Um, and I think that this sense that scripture is deep it's not just kind of when you understand it you understand it it's a kind of there's a depth to it and we're invited to 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 engage with it and to to listen to the voice of God through it not that I think that we always need to we we should not go to a place where we think that there is a top layer of scripture but we actually want to get through the top layer into the things that it isn't actually saying but we think it's saying right because this is what people didn't like about Oregon that they were like you seem to be getting past the into the the, the speculative realm too much that we're losing touch with you know just the literal um, meaning of the the text that I'm using that technically not in a mm-hmm. kind of um, so yeah in this I think it's a it's a process that we would then have to go through as a community of faith to say if we find this important because scripture we think of as alive and is alive how can we use these forms without going off the rails I think is a process that you would then have to get into. Certainly, if we understand that there's ways that the church has read scripture, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't start mm-hmm. just in the 16th century. No. And that there is actually a tradition that goes beyond that, that is part of our, our, our received understanding yeah. of, of, how we, um, of how we read the scriptures and what the message is within that. Definitely. And I think that's a, that's a really helpful way to approach it. Is there, just as we close, would there be a recommendation on your part of who might be helpful to read we obviously mentioned Oregon Mm -hmm. a couple of times but who might be helpful to read in in regards to this I think uh, Oregon would be um, if you really want kind of allegory go to Oregon but if you want lighter versions of these types of readings you could go to someone like Athanasius um, or Cyril of Alexandria, who has great commentaries on, for instance, the Gospel of John. And um, so there are Athanasius and Cyril, I think, would be um, good people to go to. Great. Well, thank you, Jasper. I think that, that that's a really intriguing thing for us to think about mm. and to try to discern and hear where the spirit has been speaking Mm -hmm. to our forefathers and mothers in previous centuries and instead of kind of lopping off that history of of reading of the scriptures to try to adopt some of that and bring that into our own understanding now thank you so much for having me and um, it was a great chat thanks jasper Well, thank you, Jasper, for inspiring us to broaden our own reading of Scripture by including the early church fathers and mothers. In our next episode, Kenny will be chatting with Ruth Perrin and Ed Earnshaw about how we can effectively reach out to university students today. Ruth teaches the module Church and Student Culture at WTC and has a PhD from Durham University. Her postdoctoral research focuses on the faith of millennials. Ed, meanwhile, is the programme director for the Student Ministry Graduate Diploma at WTC and also works for Fusion Movement as a student mission developer. 
We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 13 with Ruth Perrin and Ed Earnshaw talking about all things student ministry related. Bye for now.